0: All right, welcome everybody to the weekly show that I put on and we're starting just a tad bit late fresh cup of coffee, but that's okay. Um, well, welcome uh, to the show where uh, my name is Ryan Polly. where try to think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview, and then bring experts on to talk to you and help you better engage the culture that we are living in and interact with people that maybe you wouldn't be able to interact with. And so today uh, joining me is Greg Kokel. He is uh, the president of Stand to Reason. He's an adjunct professor at uh, Biola University University. He has his own radio show for over 30 years, and he's written the book Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions, which last year, uh, the new 10th anniversary edition came out. He's also the author of the story of reality. So, Greg, thank you for coming on and joining me today.
1: Ryan, it's great to chat with you this morning. Thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's always fun to be able to talk with you. I'm a an affiliate of <laughs> Stand to Reason, so I'm kind of connected right. to the ministry and help you guys out uh, a little sure bits do. here and there, and uh, do some speaking events like at Hume Lake and have a lot of fun doing that. And so, right, you've I've been act- a
1: great, te- a great help to us. Thanks, Ryan.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's a, a you know it's one of those things, and I've told you this before, but you know when I moved to California to start doing my program at Biola, Uh, knowing that Stand to Reason was so close, located in Long Beach, I said, I got to figure out a way to get plugged in. And (laughs) uh, that happened, serving at the Rethink Conferences, now the Reality Conferences. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun. And so, and even uh, the the book we're discussing today, Tactics, it's been out quite a while. Uh, But while I was in the Dominican Republic, uh, I taught an apologetics course at the Seminary down there, and took a week or two and actually went over the tactics material and oh. uh, how to translate my presentations all into Spanish. And um, Do you uh,
1: speak Spanish?
0: I do. I do. Oh, yeah. wow. I learned while good living overseas. So yeah, when you live in the country four years, you kind of pick up a thing oh, th- 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 here or there. And... Okay.
1: Well, there actually is a tactics in Spanish too. I yeah, don't know if it, you knew that.
0: I do uh, now, t- but it was not tacticas. available. Oh,
1: okay, t- <laughs> t- Tacticus uh, It is available on Amazon. So yeah. well, that's uh, incredible. we're really glad to be able to just kind of serve the Spanish speaking community with that book now.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's a great resource. For those who have followed my ministry for any amount of time, know this is one of the top books that I recommend. It's kind of, you know, if you want to know an apologetic overview, then, you know, maybe uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But you have to know how to have these kind of conversations, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So maybe uh, quickly, for those who don't know of the book Tactics, who haven't heard of it, uh, how is this different than maybe the apologetic conversations on arguments for God's existence? And how is it kind of right, how right. does it play into that apologetic information?
1: Well, at Stand to Reason, we have a motif and, and, uh, and what we're trying to accomplish in general. And we're trying to build a certain type of person. And we call that person an ambassador. And there are three characteristics of a good ambassador. Uh, we call it knowledge, wisdom, and character So knowledge is an accurately informed mind And frankly, most uh, apologetics organizations serve that purpose really well That is, they inform our mind Here's the challenge, here's the answer And they help us work through those things Okay, But there's another component that is characteristically overlooked um, And that is what we call wisdom Which is an artful method So you have an, you have an accurately informed mind with knowledge, but then you need an artful method to maneuver with wisdom in conversations. And you, you know, any good diplomat needs more than just the, the information that needs to be communicated. They have to communicate it in a diplomatic way. This is hard for Christians because we're not taught how to do this characteristically. And some naturally have a diplomatic bent, but actually, you and I both know this from hanging around with people like us. Most apologetics types like to just go for, the, go for the kill, you know, go for the chase. They're into it. They want to get the argument on the table. They want to show why Christianity is true and other views are false. And so that could create a kind of a confrontative circumstance. Then other people who want to engage in a productive way with apologetics and are not as aggressive, don't know how to pursue it because they're not going to go that way. And there are big liabilities to that way, you know? So, um, and I know myself because this is the way I've been for many, many years as a Christian. So how do we find a way to maneuver in a way that fulfills our third requirement, knowledge accurately informed mind wisdom and artful method but character is an attractive manner and so over the years um, and it's not just been like I sat down on it let me figure out how to do this but as I was in the process of doing it having conversations with scores of people um, one-on-one on on airplanes uh, in supermarkets at restaurants uh, with friends and also at larger gatherings at universities And I've spoken to, uh, I'm pushing close to 90 universities and colleges right now uh, over my career as a Christian speaker. Wow! And so um, that gave me opportunities to experiment with different ways of maneuvering. And uh, as I began to reflect back on what I was doing that seemed to be effective, I realized that these things that I was doing fell into different categories. There were ways to unwrap a bad argument there are different kinds of ways, depending on how the argument went bad. And I would be pursuing these. And some things I picked up from others, like the taking the roof off tactic I picked up from Dr. Francis Schaeffer. The suicide tactic has been in play for a long time. Uh, In one way or another, I gave it that name, but it's dealing with self-refuting arguments. Uh, But I realized that at the core, there was one Really, what what I call a tactic that that enveloped all the rest of them that was that was the in a certain sense the launching pad for all the rest of them and that became the core of what I call the tactical game plan. So the tactical game plan is driven by one tactic, which is the central issue, and. When I teach on this, if I have limited time, even if I have like three or four hours, I almost always focus on the game plan proper, figuring people will get the rest of the tactics from the book. Uh, I might mention something about it, but the game plan is the most important thing. And this game plan proper has been the game changer, I think, for for me. Personally, and for so many people, and Ryan, I've had the most frequent comment that I've gotten from people regarding the book, and I, I it's deeply flattering and it's deeply humbling to hear this, uh, but it's really nice to hear it. And that is, they tell me that this book has changed their life. I hear that phrase mm. over and over and over again. Yeah, and they and then they and they they are clear on what they mean by that. It has changed their life in their ability. To engage in conversations that might otherwise be hostile and uh, calamitous, maybe for them, but now they can maneuver using the game plan in a relaxed and gracious way, having more impact and more effective effectiveness than they ever have been able to do so in the past. Yeah, well, that's
0: so good, and 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 that's really why I want to uh, you know have you on and, and discuss these things because I think what I love about this. And why I recommend it, especially to students so much, is that students and all Christians, I think, uh, we generally have almost maybe you could say a fear of evangelism, right? We're, we're nervous of, if I do right. this, then what might someone say? And right. so there's these difficult situations that sometimes we uh, kind of psych ourselves out about maybe. And, and as you kind of write in this book, uh, you know, we don't even get into the game. And so uh, maybe here at the beginning to share a little bit, and I want to kind of give you a a, a quick little um, congratulations, I guess, as a comment came in and and they they find uh, what uh, Sarah wrote in and said, what she finds admirable about you is that you talk to many different groups and different sizes and you don't show favoritism. In fact, you talked with Girl Talk Apologetics last night. I did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just I was the only – uh, it was like a, a Hollywood squares of estrogen there, and I was the the only uh, the guy in the group. But it was yeah. wonderful,
0: awesome, yeah. awesome. So, so I do want to get into very specific uh, instances, and I, and I want to encourage those who are are watching and and uh, the, to to send in their questions of maybe specific uh, events that that they are, have difficulties maneuvering inside of. Um, but kind of before that, of, of how does this approach? take that stress off and kind of relieve the pressure and allow people to start getting into conversations about Jesus.
1: Sure, well let me, in order to answer that question, I'm gonna have to describe a little bit the nature of the game plan and that tactic that I was just referring to, okay? And, And this is one tactic that is the most effective tactic to stop challengers in their tracks, to turn the table and to get them thinking. And especially, Uh, To put the Christian in the driver's seat of the conversation. Now that is the goal of the tactical approach. And, uh, and I don't mean that we're manipulating anything. Um, I, I mean that we're controlling the conversation in an appropriate way we want. The conversation to go in the direction that we want it to go, and uh, so that it, we it, it we could be most productive, but also in a way that provides tremendous safety for us and this is a key element of the tactical game plan, and people have reflected on this a lot the safety that it provides because of the way the game plan unfolds, so this tactic. Um, is like I was saying, it's the most effective tactic to keep you in the driver's seat, to turn the tables and to get the other person thinking the tactic has a name and it's called Colombo. Now, um, many young people aren't familiar with Colombo, but I have not gone in a country and taught on this and whether it's in, in France or in England or in, uh, Hungary or, uh, where was I just recently Paraguay, uh, um, Philippines, There are people who know the iconic TV character, Columbo.
0: Well, I'll I'll tell you what here really quick. Sorry to cut you off. But I was sitting at a Starbucks about two years ago preparing my talk on tactics to give at Hume Lake uh, and sitting right next to me uh, is one of, you know, the Starbucks has the long tables where everyone kind of sit kind of close, you know, before quarantine, they're right next to you. And um, the guy pulls out his phone and he started watching Columbo on his phone. (laughs) <laughs> and so the guy sitting there next to me watching Columbo and I'm on my screen working on the Columbo tactic and it says oh, Columbo tactic it. at the top of my screen. And I, oh, okay. and I go, Hey, nice show. I'm working on a talk on that right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's So great. it well, led so... into
0: a very interesting conversation of using that to say, Hey, what is the talk about? And, and, and kind of leading sure. into that. But anyways, I thought that was so funny.
1: Oh, it's great. Lieutenant Colombo is uh, apparently the number one TV icon of all time. Oh, wow. He even beat Lucy who is number two, which surprised me. Uh, and it's because he's such a, he's a, a Fetching character who has a unique uh, capability of getting uh, the crime solved without scaring away the the criminal. Okay, and he does that being unassuming and scratching his head and mumbling to himself at the crime scene. And, and this guy doesn't look like he's thick as way out of a wet paper bag. Right? <laughs> he's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox because he has a routine. Yeah. And at some point, he's going to scratch his head. And he's got this cigar. I, I, go, I have my cigar handy here. Uh, I, I got my props, so I do it with my trench coat and the whole deal in front of an audience. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and then he says something like, you know what? There's something about this thing that bothers me. Do you mind if I ask you a question? So he asks a question, gets an answer back. Ah, oh, you're very intelligent. One more thing. And then he one more tings him to death with question after question after question. So the key to the Colombo tactic is that we use questions in a very precise and creative way to maneuver through conversations. Now, a couple of reasons questions are valuable. For one, that they're polite. So if you engage somebody and you're asking them, um, well, you're not preaching at them. You're, you're drawing them out. You're showing an interest in that person. And this is just good manners. Okay. And, um, so that's one thing, but there's another thing that's really important about this. When you're asking questions, you are actually in control of the conversation. You are guiding it. You're in the driver's seat. Now, Look at this conversation we're having, Ryan. There you are, cool, calm, and collective. You're not breaking a sweat. You're relaxed. You're drinking your coffee. You're not doing any work. I'm doing all the work. But how is the conversation going? It's going in the direction that you want it to go because of the questions that you have asked me. Yeah. So that's the way talk shows go, and these kinds of interviews go all the time. But we can employ that same concept in our engagements with other people. Yeah. And for people who are a little bit uh, um, uneasy about getting into conversations about controversial topics, especially in the volatile environment that we find ourselves in now, mm-hmm. this is the perfect way to engage. Because what we're not doing is we're not, at least initially and directly, offering an opposing view which implicitly says you're wrong and I'm right. You should believe what I believe rather than you believe because that gets people's defenses up. Now there's a sense in which this is what we do. Obviously we we are trying to change people's mind. It's a persuasive enterprise and it's controversial issues that really matter. So it's worth taking the heat yeah. because of what's at stake. But if we can eliminate as much of the heat as possible, it's going to be easier for more Christians to engage. We're going to get off the bench is the way I put it. And it's going to be um, more effective when we do and more pleasant when we do. Okay. Yeah. And so the, the core of the Colombo question uh, tactic rather is using questions to maneuver in a very specific way. Uh, in order to to move forward in the conversation. Now, we don't know where any conversation is going to go. It, it, it might not get to the gospel. It might get to some other ethical issue or prior issue that is important to deal with before you can get to the gospel. Like a person says, well, nobody can know what's true about religion. Well, that's an epistemic issue. That's an issue about how we know what we know. And that's something that's in the way of us making the case that you can know something true about religious issues. Mm -hmm. And so we have to deal with that first. So sometimes the questions um, reveal a stumbling block that needs to be dealt with. And it may turn out, Ryan, that in that conversation, all we deal with is the stumbling block. Okay, and we don't get to the gospel, but what we've done is spoken to something that is in the way of the gospel for that person, and next time around with a conversation we might have with them, at their friends, or with a conversation they might have with some other Christian, now we've done a little work to prepare them for the next conversation. Now, let me say something that's really important here, and I, when I introduced the whole game plan, I... <clears throat> I lay this foundation first. I'm just going to do a thumbnail sketch of it here now for the sake of time, but this is really important. I make a distinction, as the Bible does, between harvesting and gardening. Jesus calls it reaping and sowing in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. After that conversation with her, he has a conversation with the disciples. Your listeners should read it today, after we're done here, because it's very telling. He says, some reap and some sow. Okay, that means some, not all of us are reapers. And in fact, without the sowers, there wouldn't be any reapers. But we have an evangelism method that focuses on reaping. You know, the four steps we go through, and then do you want to pray to receive Christ? And so this is where we're trying, we're always pressing to get people to receive Christ. Now, this is discomforting for a lot of Christians. And if they think, I have to get to the gospel and get them to try to receive Christ, That's scary, and I'm not even going to start, and they stay on the bench. And my point is, if you do not have a lot of gardeners in the field doing a little here and a little there, not necessarily getting to the gospel proper in a particular conversation, but moving that individual a little bit more forward towards the gospel, we've done something productive, because uh, not all of us are, are... reapers or or, uh, harvesters. In fact, few of us are. And the reason that few of us are actually harvesters is because the heavy lifting is actually done in the gardening. And by the way, people who do gardening know what I'm talking about. You spend all summer long working away, pulling weeds, watering, and whatever, so that when the tomatoes are ripe, you can go like that and get your tomato. It's easy when the fruit (laughs) is ripe. OK, so I think most people are are gardeners and I'm a gardener as I look at what's happening in my life and how God uses me. Um, I'll say something now that it's going to shock a lot of people. I don't know if you've even heard me say this, Ryan, but I've been doing it for the last year and a half or two years because I like the shock factor. And there's an important point here. And that is that I have not prayed with somebody to receive Christ in at least 30 years. And when i say that i give a beat of silence because i know what everybody's thinking what a loser you know (laughs) i thought you were a christian yeah that's right (laughs) And, uh, and how could he say that because i thought we're all supposed to be leading people to christ and the answer to that is no the body of christ is to be involved in the process of evangelism leading to salvation for people so that we can disciple them that's the Great Commission, Discipleship Commission, but different people have different jobs, which is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter four. Some reap and some sow, yeah. so that those who reap and those who sow can rejoice together. together. Okay. Now, a little postscript on this. Um, uh, you might recognize this name, Jay Warner Wallace, and some of your listeners might do as well. Well, Jim used to listen to our radio show at Stand to Reason, which I hosted, when he was still an atheist. hmm I didn't lead Jay Warner Wallace to Christ. Somebody else did. But Jim was in my garden, and I was gardening Jim for a long time, and that had a powerful effect on what happened later. And of course, everybody knows now Jim to be cold case detective and cold case Christianity and God's crime scene and forensic faith, all these bestsellers as an apologist because he became a Christian based on the apologetics he learned. And part of that, I'm not taking credit for it all, but part of it is my contribution as a gardener, okay? So even though I didn't lead someone to Christ, somebody else got me, came into my garden <laughs> and, and picked my fruit, right? But I don't care. We rejoice together. Uh, you might recognize the name of um, Abdul Murray, currently now senior VP of uh, RZIM. Uh, Abdu, a former Muslim who became a Christian and then became a Christian apologist, then a Christian speaker, and now then a speaker on RZIM and now a principal there in their leadership. Well, Abdu, and he told me this first time I met him, that when he was still a Muslim, he was listening to the show. And so Abdu Murray was in my garden. So I have no I have no trouble telling people that gardening is fine because the big agricultural expert in the sky. <laughs> He's the one in charge of it all. We each do our different parts, some sow, some reap. So what I'm encouraging people to do is don't worry about harvesting. Think about gardening. And this is a gardening tool. And this gardening tool may lead individuals to a harvest moment. But if it doesn't, it's okay. Because you've done some work in the garden, a little here, a little there. And what I've seen, Ryan, is taking this tactical approach and I've just begun to talk about how it works will get people a lot of Christians who were intimidated about the idea that they had to get to the you know the end game, get them to sign on the dotted line, close the deal intimidated by that, especially in today's culture and have been sitting on the fence on the bench rather it has gotten them into play. Gardening a little here, a little there. And the more gardeners we have, the bigger the harvest is going to be. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So there's a philosophic change of mind, I think, that's involved in embracing the tactical game plan, which core of the tactical game plan is using questions in a very particular way i call it the colombo tactic yeah so well one thing you you
0: forgot to mention about jay warner wallace though is that he is also a movie star um i, I called him that on when he came on <laughs> when he came That's on my right. show last I, I mentioned him being a movie star he wasn't too happy about that but hey he was in he was in god's <laughs> not dead too right um and then you know speaking of movies uh, for the younger people listening and watching uh that don't know who lieutenant colombo is he is the grandfather in the princess bride Uh, Who's reading the grandson? This the story, and I was watching Princess Bride the other day, and I went, "Hey, that that's Columbo." And so, anyways, that that's that's kind of my connection for the high school students who, well, yeah, most clear. That's most most young actor. Yeah. Same actor.
1: Played played both parts. Yeah. So most young people
0: have not maybe seen Columbo, but most young people have seen The Princess Bride. So I think that's uh, that's one way to make that connection. He
1: has a he has a little bit of a Columbo affect, even in that movie where he's playing the, you know, easygoing and hey, you want me to stop reading? Want me to keep reading? You know, he's just teasing him along and goading the little boy who, uh, then they go through the story, but you're yeah. right. Same guy.
0: Yeah. So uh, a couple of questions that come up, I think based on what you said, but uh, even going back to the very beginning of, of your comment is, uh, kind of this takes the pressure off and it makes it very easy and talking about how I don't have a lot of work to do. Uh, the but, first time that you came on my show was back in uh, January of 2017. So just over three years ago to discuss oh, your, really. your last book, the story of reality. And, um, I re- I remembered it was funny because I I've listened to your podcast and your radio show uh, and the STR Ask uh, so much that I was just used to hearing you talk about things and so I remember sitting there I- during our discussion uh, and it wasn't video so I didn't see your face and and just um, thinking I'm listening to you on podcast and forgot I had to come up with a new question um, <laughs> like wait I have to there is a little bit of work I have to do of thinking of of what you're saying and coming up with questions uh, about it but. Um, so I guess two things that come to mind as uh, as you were talking there is kind of I guess a mindset of some Christians and you kind of address this of one is well if I don't get to the gospel kind of I've failed. Um and then this and so it, we kind of have this extra pressure of you know okay. what's the, what's the point of what's the point of knocking down this one barrier if they're still not saved, right? And and almost this kind of urgency of we need to get people saved because we don't know what's going to happen to them and hey, if I just knock down this one barrier, they leave, something happens. I lost that opportunity.
1: Right. Well, the thing that's left out here is an understanding that most people have if they think about it. In other words, this is pretty straightforward. Nobody comes to Christ as a result of a single conversation. Think of any of your, your viewers now who became Christians as young adults or as adults. And I became a Christian when I was 23. Did you respond to the first person who talked to you? Maybe you did negatively, you know, but it took a while as for me, especially that as I got worn down little by little by little by these gardeners in my life, there was a stick and a spade in here and pulling a weed in there and watering a little bit here and softening the soil, uh, with the work of the Holy Spirit until I, I, I just kind of came around and, and there was no apologetics in my Conversion experience, like uh, unlike some of the others, like Abdu and Jay Warner and Lee Lee Strobel and so many others that we know, it's it's uh it, it was just this constant refrain of the gospel in different from different voices in different directions, principally from my younger brother Mark, but others as well, that began to wear me down. Okay, so. If you expect, you, you think, what's the point? Well, the point is it's a process and you are part of the process and you are laying one brick and somebody else is laying another brick to shift the metaphor here a little bit until you build what is adequate for the conversion. And the Holy Spirit's involved in that whole process of bringing different people in. So when somebody says, well, what's the point? The point is that that, the cha- For somebody to change their mind on an issue like this takes time. It is almost never the case that somebody hears the gospel the first time and bang, they become a believer. It does happen once in a while, but it is very, very rare. And increasingly rare as the culture gets more hostile in light of embracing, directly or indirectly, all kinds of philosophies that are deeply hostile to Christianity. And the new one right now is critical theory. I mean, this is just coming in and pounding uh, people like unbelievable in the last couple of months. And uh, so we've got all these foreign philosophies that people are, are imbibing in without thinking about and receiving. And the gospel stands against those world views. And, uh, and so it takes a long time for people to work through that. And we are a team Okay, we are a team of people. Think about an event that you and I might be doing. So you'll be speaking one talk. I'll be speaking another talk. Uh, Jay Warner will be speaking something else, you know, and and so we got all of us are making our contributions so that the end of the two day conference, somebody by the aggregate impact is convinced. Okay, so that happens at a conference. But the same thing is true over time with individuals and the different so-called speakers are the individual gardeners that God brings into a person's life. So I want to encourage people, do not sell short this idea that uh, doing just a little bit and not getting to the gospel is not enough. Think, here's the second point, very easy. Think of all the times that Jesus got to the gospel. He almost never did. When you read Jesus talking about spiritual things, it is almost always bad news. (laughs) Think of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, all those sweet little blessings, and then he gets into the demands of the law, you know? Oh, you, you didn't commit adultery? Good for you. But if you think about it, and that takes care of every man on the planet, well, then you're sunk, right? So you're already a sinner in that regard. Oh, you haven't committed murder? That's nice. I'm glad. But if you hate your brother without cause, if you just call him a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Is that good news? That's not good news. He ends that section by saying, you are to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Ouch. That's not good news. He doesn't say, but never mind. If you put your faith in me, then I, I'll save you. And what? he doesn't say that. He lets the bad news sit there for a long time. So even Jesus did get to the gospel in every conversation. And um, therefore, you know, I don't see that we have some kind of artificial obligation to do that either. I think what has happened is there's a historical and historical impact, Ryan, um, because in the 18th century, 19th century, um, there was a whole shift in the way evangelism was done. And that's when the altar calls came into, uh, into being. And that's when the, pardon me, the decision for Christ mentality kind of, let's offer, pray to receive Christ. That's historically new. You do not see anything like that in the book of Acts. The closest thing to an altar call is a baptism in the book of Acts. But nobody's invited to receive Christ. People are have the gospel communicated to them in a clear and a powerful way and then they believe. What must we do? Acts chapter 2. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. In other times they just believed. God opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel. She believed. Thousands were added, you know, but no altar calls. So I think once we realize that some of our evangelism uh, practices now are culturally influenced— we have the freedom to break away from them a little bit and still and do what happened in the bible yeah. Because it's going to be more effective in many cases. Yeah. And I think
0: that's so important to here to point out, because uh, even the question came in of, of um, have we seen kind of these tactics used in scripture? You know, has Jesus kind of implemented this approach? And I think what you're saying here is that, yeah, Jesus has done this. This is kind of how he addressed the crowds. And this isn't something kind of foreign to, to what we see, how Jesus responds to people. Right. Um, in fact,
1: if I, I noted in the book here, the new one, I talk about uh, Jesus, uh, some of the questions Jesus asked, I did it in the old too, but I got a number of how many questions that he asked in here. And it's like over 300. Yeah. I think it's 384 or something like that. My that right. memory serves me well, but that's a lot of questions. Jesus used the Columbo tactic. Yeah. And he gardened and gardened and gardened and gardened. He didn't harvest yeah. very much. The harvest came, the biggest harvest came later after the resurrection.
0: Yeah and so I think this is this is so good because kind of my second question is is you know we we have this like uh, you kind of talked about the attitude of harvesting that we have and that we need to change that and so the question comes is how do we change that how do we try to convince people or show people that this kind of approach that we have uh needs to maybe be changed and one would be uh looking at what Jesus has done and how Jesus yeah. responded to people and I think two is trusting in in God and the work of the Holy Spirit, that He is going to bring people to Him, that He desires to bring people to Him, and that it, it's not on me. Uh, I don't have to do X, Y, and Z. And if man, if I, if I, if I didn't get to the gospel in this one conversation, it's my fault they're going to hell. Uh, yeah. That's not trusting in God's
1: sovereignty. That's right. I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and this is why I keep mentioning John chapter 4. The woman of the well is a famous passage because of the conversation between Jesus and the woman. I want people to read what happens afterwards when she goes back to Sychar, and then Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he tells them, you are about to reap where you did not sow. Well, that identifies two different groups of people, one field, Sychar, two different groups of people, two different seasons. So you got the re, you got the sowers and the reapers and you got a sowing season and a reaping season. And he's saying, well, the sowing has been done now it's reaping time. And you just walked in and you're going to get the low hanging fruit. You're going to get the easy pickings because somebody else did the hard work of the sowing. Maybe that was him. Maybe that was uh, uh, the woman at the well, maybe other things that happened in Sychar to get people ready, but now they were ready. And so when you see that general motif, described there in chapter four of John, I think it's going to help people be more relaxed about adopting this mentality. The cultural force to stay in the old mode is really strong, and I, I'll just tell you frankly, I've gotten criticism from people whose every person who I'm talking to will recognize their name, That and it was really stern that I was making a big mistake giving this advice, but I'm standing behind it, first of all, because I think it's soundly biblical, and secondly, I see the impact that it has on people. The impact it has, people have told me, this has set me free. Quite literally, this is what they said, this has set me free. I'm going for it. I'm so glad. And they're getting off of the bench and they're into play. And when I give them a game plan for gardening, now they have a way to do it. That's within their reach. And that really powerfully influences their ability to accomplish it. Yeah. So. Kind of
0: asking these questions is easy if you're interviewing someone, right? It's it's natural to ask them lots of questions, and it, and that kind of relieves the pressure. But how do you go about doing this when you're the one that's being challenged? You're the one that's being interviewed uh, by 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 someone in culture. They're saying, okay, okay. Here's how the do they biggest... implement questions.
1: Okay, so let me give you. Uh, I got to outline the game plan very briefly here. Yeah. Uh, in the first step of the game plan, remember each of these entails a question. There are three steps to the game plan. Okay. And the first two are the basic ones. So you can in- initiate the game plan just with the first two questions <clears throat> because you don't need to know anything in order to do, to use these. The third one is a little more advanced, but the first, for, first thing that you want to do when you're in a conversation, before you think about anything else, you're not thinking about the end game, forget about it. You don't know where you're going to go with this. All you want to do is gather information. So in a military terms, you're taking the lay of the land, you're getting some intel. So if you were the non-Christian I was talking to, Ryan, and I have never never met you, uh, then I'm, I'm, I'm I want to have an impact in your life. It seems like we have a little friendly interaction here. So I'm going to start out by finding out something about you, hopefully finding something about your spiritual point of view. OK, and that might be stimulated by different things. You might be wearing a T-shirt that says uh, uh, revolution or something on it, you know, uh, or or who knows? There was a there was a, uh, a young lady that was serving me a number of years ago in Wisconsin uh, doing some uh, I was leaving some photography stuff for her and that she was going to process. And she had a pentagram hanging from her neck. I tell this story in the book, of, yeah. in, in the beginning, uh, opening pages of the book pentagram is a five point star that is often an occultic symbol. So I just asked her, does that jewelry have religious significance to you? And she, yeah, she said, yes, I'm a pagan. Okay. Now my wife was standing next to me and she'd never heard anybody say that before. And she started laughing and then she said, Oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to be rude, but I'd never heard anybody admit it before, you know? <laughs> so then she went on to explain about the the earth religion that she believed in. And so I realized I'm talking to a witch. And so I said, are you a witch? And she, are you Wiccan is the way I put it. And she said, yes, I am. And then she said, we respect all life. Okay, now I just want you to think about just the conversation so far. What did I do? I just initiated with a question about her that gave me more information. In this particular case, it was a question that allowed me to zero in on something that was potentially spiritual, which turned out to be. And then when she said, yes, it did. And she's a pagan. Well, then I can draw her out and ask her more about what does that mean when she's a pagan? And she said, well, it's an earth religion and uh, we respect all life. Okay. Now, wait a minute. If she has a worldview that respects all life, well, she would probably be pro-life. Right. And so I asked her and she said, no, I'm actually pro-choice. And so I said, well, isn't that unusual to be respecting be a, be a witch and to respect all life and to be pro choice. And because most witches, as I understand are pro life because of that belief. Hmm. And she said, yes, I, I know. Yeah, it is a little bit odd. And then she kind of made an explanation for it. I don't want to give the whole conversation here, yeah. but notice how I'm proceeding. It's a relaxed, friendly conversation. I'm showing a genuine interest in her own beliefs. and, as she's saying things, it's creating their ambiguities about what she's saying. I want to learn more, so I ask more questions every single time I ask a question of her about her own views with genuine interest I'm flattering her you know i'm not I'm not thumping her on the chest you know and and telling her she's wrong. I'm just trying to figure it out her views. but the more that I figure out her views, the more I understand what i'm up against. Mm-hmm. And the more questions I have for further clarification. So I want to get as much information about her views as possible. Now, there's a secret to this that a lot of people don't realize when the more if Christianity is true, opposing views are false. Okay, that's just the way common thinking, good thinking works. If her opposing view or anybody else's opposing view is false, the more they talk about their opposing view, the more opportunity it's going to be for us to see what's wrong with it Hmm. when they lay it out more clearly. Okay, and that gives us then an opportunity to, yeah, point out what's wrong with it, but with a question and not with a statement. Questions have the ability of making a point but ending your participation in the conversation so you're not preaching at somebody and throwing the ball in their court so now it's their turn to make the case for their own view, which you are subtly and graciously challenging with your question, you know, like remember Columbo and it's something about this thing that bothers me, you know, help me out here. What am I misunderstanding? Okay. Now that's an example that I gave of someone that I'm initiating a conversation with and I'm using something that I see as a springboard for a question that ends up moving into a spiritual conversation of sorts that, uh, my questions reveal more opportunities for more questions. Great. That whole conversation was very interesting, the way it turned out. And it, it, like I said, the details are in the book. But that's an example of an, initi- an initiation. Now, you would ask a question about somebody else bringing a challenge to us. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So somebody might offer the challenge. Um, well, Jesus never even existed. Okay, now that's a challenge to our view, because if Jesus didn't exist, we're dead dead in the water. Even if we have nice moral teaching, uh, Jesus is central, and if Jesus is gone, there's no Christianity. Um, And so now what? Oh, I could give—I know all kinds of reasons I could give for the historicity of Jesus. I give talks about this. But I am not going to lay that all on them, because every time I give a reason, they have an opportunity to object. or to dismiss it. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to instead ask the very first question of the game plan. Remember, the goal is to gather information. So here's the first question. It's some form of the question, what do you mean by that? Now, when a person said Jesus never existed, it seems pretty obvious. Okay. And I can assume I get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I want that person to talk more about that because I don't want the pressure on me to have to answer that question right away. And when he asks the question offers the challenge now, now it's on me. And a lot of Christians are going, Oh, I don't know what to say. Here's what you say. What do you mean? (laughs) That's what you say. You toss the ball back into the court and you ask for more information and they might say, well, there, there is no historical evidence about Jesus to which I'm going to say, really? He's one of the most written about, persons of, of ancient history by historians. Why why do you say that? Oh, see what happened? I just asked another question and now it's his turn. Even though I offered a little bit of thought there, it's his turn to answer. Now, um, once a person flushes out their view for me and chances are when you ask a person to clarify their view, this is, I know Ryan, this seems strange, but you probably experienced it. The very confident person who has offered the objection oftentimes begins to stumble because they've never been asked this question before. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to explain their view because what they are doing is repeating something they've heard other people say they haven't looked into it themselves and that statement they offered as stonewalled Christians in the past. And, uh, and so they don't know how to take it a step further. okay. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. All right. And, uh, and, and so anyway, this was, this turns out to be a, uh, a, you'll people will be surprised at how often other people will not be able to give a clear accounting of their own view. And this creates now, this unsettles them a little bit. And that's good. We want them to be unsettled about believing something false. Okay. Yeah. So um, there that's an example. Somebody says, well, everything's relative. Oh, really? What do you mean by relative? Okay, now it's their turn to explain their view. I want them to explain their view. I'm not going to try to refute it. I wrote a book on relativism. I know what it means and I know what's wrong with it. <laughs> Excuse me, but that doesn't mean they know what it means. And by the way, when they say everything's relative, I have a question about that word everything, because if everything is relative, isn't the statement, everything's relative, part of everything, right? And so that would make their own statement also relative. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the suicide tactic kind of working its way in there in that conversation. There's some examples of how yeah, that might play yeah, out. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I think it's so powerful and kind of the,
0: the third step that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people that uh, commented uh, on this, uh, the fact that I was doing this interview, it said they either read the book or they're currently reading it. So they're kind of familiar with these things. But I think it's so powerful in that, you know, I recently had someone challenge me on my YouTube channel saying, you know, Jesus never existed and all this kind of stuff. And I said, how would you come to that conclusion? And they said, well, there's no external historical records whatsoever and so i said well have you considered and i listed about nine external non-christian you know right. historians that talk about jesus to which i never got a response um,
1: right. and you know I right. like, okay well have you considered these people and maybe okay. they maybe they hadn't considered those people let me let me ask a question in that conversation then when they say there's no external evidence what they mean is the only evidence is matthew mark luke and john uh which by the way isn't true but paul is also evidence. yep But all of these are because Paul talks about it in his epistles. Now, keep in mind, and people maybe don't realize this, but in a certain sense, the Bible, particularly the New Testament, as we understand it, did not exist until the fourth or fifth century. And what I mean by that is all of the parts existed, but they did get combined together in an individual book until the fourth or fifth century, that's called a codex. Okay. And, um, and so when people say it's only in the Bible, they are thinking of there's only one reference and it was written by Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out those are actually a collection of multiple references that were independent references. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, John. These are seven independent references. Okay. So now the question is, well, then they want to say, well, that was all written by Christians. And the question I'm going to ask is why does that make that unreliable? Now they have to answer that because they're implying it's not reliable because it's written by Christians. And of course (laughs) there's, if you're going to lie about something, (laughs) here's the rule. You lie about something that doesn't get you beaten, tortured, beheaded, crucified upside down, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, <clears throat> you lie about something that's going to help you, not hurt you. Yeah. So um, and by the way, who do we know most? How do we know most things about the Holocaust? From Holocaust survivors. Okay, so would we, you know, uh, get information about the Shoah, you know, and say, well, you can't trust any of that stuff. Why? Because that was people who experienced it. That's why you can trust it, for goodness sake. So but notice how I do have in my mind a little bit of a sense of what's wrong with the with the challenge. And so I'm I'm still using questions to exploit the error. By the way, that's the third use of Colombo, where you use questions to exploit, to, to make a point, and often that's to exploit a weakness or a flaw. Incidentally, I didn't talk about the second step, so let me add that in just to complete the picture. The first step is you gather information, and you use the question, what do you mean by that? The second step is you, is you what I call, reverse the burden of proof, and that is if they're going to make a claim against us, like Jesus never existed, there is no God, the Bible's been changed, etc then it is not my job first to defeat the claim. It is their job to defend it. And so the burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim. And that's why when they make a claim, I want to ask the question, some form of the question, now how did you come to that conclusion? Or why do you think that's the way it is? Or what are the reasons for your point? So if somebody says everything is relative, then I'm going to ask him what he means by relative. And when he, if he has a good grasp of that, I said, okay, why do you think everything's like that? Now, notice that this is another question. So the ball continually is thrown in the other person's court. And I hope your viewers can see how effective this can be to keep the pressure off of them in a legitimate way. And they might be thinking, especially the more aggressive ones, well, don't I ever get to say my thing and do my thing and tell my story? Well, yeah, down the line. But if you just do it directly and shoot it out there, it is not tactically wise. Hmm. You want to be shrewd. And we can we have there's opportunities for us to make our points but we want to make them using questions as much as possible. And of course, the book is filled with examples of that yeah. at each stage of the game.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Well, you know, and I want to get into, there are a couple of practical questions uh, about the book and then some very uh, uh, kind of situational questions, kind of like what we sure. just described uh, here on YouTube. Uh, it's amazing how fast time goes. We are already 50, <laughs> 50 minutes in. You think an hour to have a conversation about something is a long time, but we're already 50 minutes in. So I just want to say, if you are listening on radio, uh, you got to go over to the podcaster. Or- the YouTube channel uh, to find the rest of the conversation. It will cut off here shortly, um, but uh, for all, as we continue this conversation. Um Sarah is actually currently reading uh, your new—I think it is a new version of your book—and uh, is enjoying it. She said that you know, just the idea uh, here uh, th- uh, that she feels liberated uh, by thinking about Jesus sewing, and so that is a very liberating thing. Yeah, there's that comment again. I yeah. just
1: feel set free in a certain way.
0: And she so she said in a kind of a conversation, kind of on a background of the book, um, and here it is: it's how did Greg uh, begin to see through some of the common
1: notions of today? Okay, um, this is a process of learning. Okay. No, I have a master's degree in philosophy. I have a master's degree in apologetics. And so my formal training has allowed me to see, uh, oh, I recognize Sarah. She was in the group last yesterday too. Oh, wonderful. So thank you for coming back to this. Uh, hi, Sarah. Um, uh, that is in the, in the ambassador motif, knowledge, wisdom, character, knowledge, and accurately informed mind. And so, um, by learning over time, uh, from teachers in a formal and an informal sense, and there's a certain is right now, these kinds of podcasts are teaching events. People are getting knowledge about things um, uh, by 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 reading books um, and then by reflecting on things. So there's so y- y- you get the information largely from other people. Okay, that's whether it's reading or podcasts or whatever. um, And there are some things that, as you develop the abilities to think more clearly about things, and this comes just by exposure to these ideas and having these conversations, because a lot of this stuff is caught more than it's taught. Okay, and as 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 you begin seeing things yourself, that's another way that you realize. What's wrong with an idea? So uh, I remember, for example, the first time that I uh, that I learned that somebody complaining that you're push- we're pushing our morality on them is actually a self-refuting statement, and I learned it from J.P. Moreland at a lecture. And this was many, many years ago. And JP was talking about an encounter he had with a student. And the student said, you shouldn't be pushing your morality on me. This is what the student said. And JP said, well, uh, I may be mistaken, but it sounds to me like you're pushing your morality on me right now. Which was true because the student is saying you should not be pushing morality. So he's telling JP not to do the very thing that he is doing in the midst of telling JP, yeah. so it's a classic practical suicide following the nomenclature in the tactics book there. I had never heard that before and it like the light went on and I'm taking notes like crazy. I thought I could take this to the bank and now I can see a self-refuting argument coming a mile away. Yeah, Not because of my insight because of somebody else's insight that they passed on to me. And so this gives me now a perceptive capability in conversate, pardon me, in conversations in order to see, uh, what it is that's, that's going wrong with somebody's point. And it gives me the opportunity to respond with a question.
0: And it's amazing that when, when you start to be able to see those things, uh, just the other night, my wife and I were watching uh, the TV show Str- stronger, uh, like, a workout competition kind of game oh, show yeah. sort of thing. Um, it's a very interesting, uh, it was a very interesting show. But um, uh, one of the trainers uh, was acting inappropriately. And and so the other trainers and some of the contestants kind of came to talk about him. And he goes, well, why are you judging me? You're, you can't judge me. And my wife immediately kind of asked the question, uh, you know, it's like, well, is it why, you know, he, but he was judging them at the same time. Uh, you, right. you shouldn't judge me. And he's making judgments. And so she asked the, you know, the question and just kind of being around me and exposed and and all the learning that we've done together immediately saw it. Well, he's making a judgment on them saying that they shouldn't make
1: judgments. And that is very common in our culture today as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. And by the way, just to to show how that would work out using the tactical game plan, if somebody says, well, you shouldn't be making judgments, I'm going to ask why not? Now there's the question. And now he's have to tell me what's wrong with making judgments? And then he might say, well, because it's wrong to make judgments. Maybe, and I've actually had this conversation a number of times. And then my question is going to be, if it's wrong to make judgments of other people, then why are you judging me right now? Okay. So now it's back in his, now notice how I exposed the problem, but not by pointing it out. Well, you're judging me, that's just like a U two kind of thing. Nah, 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 Instead, I use a question, and I toss it back in his lap, and now it's his turn to answer. Then why are you judging me, huh? You know they they've never heard that before, and it's the first time it occurred to them. That they're doing the very thing that they're saying we ought not to. Yeah, that's so good. Now we are here talking about the the newer
0: version, the tenth anniversary yeah. edition of Tactics. And so a question did come in uh, on
1: YouTube prior to this. Uh, <laughs> and since they and could by not... the way, notice that red that red yeah. thing is the indicator of the tenth anniversary. So Perfect. that's the key. The older one doesn't have that. Yeah. So so this question came in here on
0: YouTube. Uh, someone who could not join live, the one to send a question, and said, after these ten years uh, that you wrote Tactics, is there a new Tactics that you could add or adjustments? Uh, or any adjustments to the old ones. And so we will talk about some of the new ones. So just really kind of briefly say, uh, for those of you who read the old one, kind of what's different and what's new about this new one?
1: Well, there's twice as many tactics in the new book. Uh, because I have w- one chapter on a whole new tactic called uh, Inside Out, which is something I've been using for decades. But I never really found a clear way to characterize it until I wrote the second edition. And then I thought, oh, this works. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy about it. And it it, it introduces a, a new... Element that I hadn't talked about before, and that is the existential element. That is the awareness that people have that there's something wrong with them and they have a deep personal need. And that is not a rational element, that is an existential, emotional, subjectivistic element. Uh, I'm unhappy in life, I'm missing something, I'm guilty. How do I get forgiven? Now, they don't always use those terms, but those are things that weigh upon people. And so I talk a little bit about how to use that uh, to approach, to do an end around of the rational elements and and go directly to the existential concern, which is huge for human beings because they're made in the image of God. Um, I also have a chapter on mini tactics in which I think I have six different things that I've talked about here and there uh, before, but I'd never quantified in one space. And so I take six or seven paragraphs to describe each one. Uh, One of them is called moving toward the objection. And there are times when it's better instead of to to push back on the objection and try to answer it to accept it and say, yeah, you're right. You know, and but that's a good thing, not a bad thing. OK, um, and I, I got that from a movie, Clear and Present Danger. It was a little it, it, towards the beginning of the movie there. Harrison Ford says, uh, d- don't deny it, move towards it and don't give them any place to go. Hmm. And uh, so uh, it, a, this is a similar kind of thing. So I, I uh, so if, if somebody says um, uh, I'm just trying to think of an example of uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, God destroyed all these people in the Old Testament, you know, the Canaanites and everything. And and, and my response is, of course he did. Do you know what they did? Hmm. Do you have any idea what these people did? They would take their children and they would roast them to death, sometimes by the thousands in order to satisfy their pagan gods. If you had been standing there when that happened, you would ask the question, how could God allow something like this to happen if God were really God? Of course he's going to judge them like that. You would too. Well, thank you all so much for
0: listening and come back next week as we continue looking at practical applications of these tactics with Greg Koekel. You don't want to miss it. This is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Polly.
1: Just as you leave, hesitate to your love Find my